One day I guess I'll have to make sure I go that way, right? Thank you, David. Uh, I, uh, too, love that song, The Longer I Serve Him. Don't you wish it said, The Longer I Serve Him, The Easier It Gets? That's not true, is it? It's not. It's, but it's a blessing. Okay, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, if you will make your way there. And let me do a few little introductory things. We took up this study a couple of weeks ago and looked at biblical church leaders. And the first one, of course, is elders. And we spent some time uh, talking about elders. One very important text for us. Um, other than 1 Timothy, which deals with the qualifications, is what I remind you of when we preach through the book of Acts, <clears throat> chapter 20 of the book of Acts, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, and that's plural, of the church to come to him. And then in verse 28, pay careful attention to this one. That's the way it actually starts, right? Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So we actually have brought together elders and Paul is actually instructing the elders, right? That came from Miletus and then in verse 28... Be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Lord, the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. So really we bring together pastor, elder, overseer, all in that connection in Acts chapter 20. Which you, you see something similar, just stay where you, where you are, or actually go back to um, 1 Timothy and listen to 1 Peter uh, I'll just turn there if I can find it. First Peter chapter 5, listen to this verse. I exhort you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. I hope you see that the reason I see this as three terms describing the same office is because of how Scripture presents it to us. It's not an overseer, one office, an elder, another office, a shepherd, another office. They're all three, overseer, pastor, uh, presbyteros, right? Remember that word. Elder and episkopos, overseer, all explaining one office with three different terms given to it. So biblically, the concept of elder, pastor, and overseer are one office. The term elder refers to the dignity of the office, and the, the terms overseer and pastor deal with the functions of the office. We also learned that the form of leadership in the New Testament is plurality of elders. We talked about that at length last time we met and talked about elders and we talked about how Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church singular. And we have uh, given to us that James asked if anyone needs prayer. Call for the elders, plural. 
that they may anoint you with oil and pray for you. Same terminology. So I believe that the unquestionable form of leadership that is presented in the New Testament is a plurality of elders. So we talked about some of the benefits of the plurality of elders. Do you remember some of the benefits? Accountability that we all need. We talked about the balancing of strengths and weaknesses uh, as we employ the gifts that God has given us. We then looked at the functions. What is the elder, what are, what's the elder role? Well, to shepherd the flock by comforting, encouraging, exhorting, reproving, rebuking, disciplining, restoring. We talked about feeding the sheep through the preaching and teaching of the word, through counseling, to protect the sheep from false doctrine, which that's what you see in Acts 20, 28. We are called to lead or govern the sheep. Again, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. In 1 Timothy 5.17, we are to provide an example to be followed. Uh, this is not a board of directors, but pastoral oversight to the congregation. Let me put together two terms right for you tonight. It is really elder-led congregationalism. That is the biblical model. Elder-led congregationalism. We serve as elders in the flock of God, and it, mean, it is a means of grace that God has given to his church to help preserve and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Okay, So I think, with all that being said, we, need, we don't need to take this lightly. We need to take it seriously. You are called to submit to this leadership, and that, if that's the case, then you have to entrust yourself to that leadership. So this brings us to the qualifications. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. I'm sorry, if you're ready for deacons, then you would hear that one. But let's back up to chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul has, I think, five, uh, speaking off the top of my head, I think there are five trustworthy statements in 1 Timothy. Here's, here's one of them. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, first, we would say clearly tonight that eldership is a calling. Do y'all agree? Uh, notice how the text says it. If anyone aspires to the office of an over overseer, part of the calling begins with the desire of the man of God himself. And so there is a sense of aspiration and desire which fits into a biblical understanding of the call of God upon a man's life. It's not simply... Uh, a person wanting a position of power. Uh, I can tell you now, that wouldn't be a good move. All right? From experience. If you're just looking for a position of power, um, 
I don't know if this is an expression you use up in Missouri, but in the South, we would say, you are certainly barking up the wrong tree, right? So it's not simply wanting position or power. It is a serious responsibility. And James 3.1 would remind us that because of the aspect of teaching, it's going to bring a stricter judgment upon those who actually teach. It has many joys, but it also has many heartaches. It's a calling from God. The first thing is that there must be a genuine call of God on the person's life that has been implanted, that, that desire has been implanted in them from the Lord, or as the text says, an aspiration to such. So I believe that there's way more to this call than what I'm telling you biblically, but this is where it begins. Okay? It is a calling. Number two, it's work. What does the text say? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Or it can be translated work. It is a noble work. In other words, to be an elder in the church of the Lord is an excellent work in overseeing God's church. And as Acts tells us, it is the church that the Lord actually bought by his own blood. There's something that is magnificent about shepherding the flock of God. But it is also work. It's not a matter of sitting on a board or in a meeting once a quarter and making financial decisions. It is work. Okay, let's make sure we understand. It's a calling and it's work. Number three, there are necessary qualifications. The text says, therefore an overseer must be. Okay, so there are necessary qualifications. As we proceed through this section, I want you to know that there is not a single one of us who would say to you, if you're an elder, each of these qualifications describe me perfectly, right? I have arrived. I have attained unto perfection. There's a balance of necessary qualifications and yet recognizing that no person save the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the flesh who has attained perfection or was perfect. Although not perfected, there has to be present in us as elders an increasing reality of growth in the Lord with these particular qualifications. Okay? Are you ready? You already were ready, right? He must be above reproach. Philip Towner says that this is the only one that is not straight up self-explanatory. Reproach functions as an umbrella. And this is that primary one when, when people will say, well, what does it mean for an elder to be above reproach? I mean, because we look at our own lives and we're like, wow, oh, I couldn't say that. No one could say above reproach in the sense that we're, we think of naturally. In other words, we would look at that and think, you can't have any kind of defect at all. Or maybe we think that means you don't sin, but absolutely that's not the case. We would pray that we would not sin, but the reality is you probably have and you've probably sinned today. Don't look at me so spiritual, right? So this is an umbrella qualification, meaning that I think if you read down through the qualifications, you begin to see what it means to be above reproach, right? It's the umbrella statement. So it is an umbrella qualification, and it relates to a man's character. So to be above reproach does not, does not mean that you have never made any mistakes, nor does it mean that you have been perfectly wise in your actions, words, and deeds. It means 
that this person cannot be legitimately discredited in his profession of his faith in Christ. Now I know that that's not only an inside thing, an, uh, an inward thing that you profess Christ. In other words, it, it must by necessity have an outcome on the outside of your life, right? It has to make a difference in you and it should. The elder has a character that is consistent, we might say, with our profession of faith. He's not attained perfection, but his life is moving in a consistent direction, and his life is, therefore, above reproach. So, uh, I feel a sting in my conscience, and so should you, because we realize that we all sin, we all fall, we all stumble in many ways, and there is, however, a recourse for a man of God when he sins, when he falls, when he stumbles. And what's that recourse? It's called repentance. Amen? It's called seeking forgiveness. So I believe that the umbrella uh, above reproach is that he would, uh, that's under this umbrella, is that you would seek forgiveness when we need to, right? And we repent. When elders need to repent, they repent. Okay, that's the first one, above reproach. Listen, listen to the scripture. The Bible says, the husband of one wife. How many ever been to seminary in here? Raise your hand. Philip Schieffer back there? Oh, all right. Blake and uh, James. Who else? Well, yes, sir. That's uh, Joey's dad. Name escapes me. Joey? Oh, that's a real hard one. <laughs> that was real hard. I stepped in that one. I should have guessed. No. Um, if you have gone to seminary uh, or even been in a Bible college, then you certainly have dealt with this particular phrase because it's it uh, I could tell you that we could spend an entire Sunday school lesson on it on just that particular phrase and there are many interpretations to this phrase uh, that you would probably not want to listen to all of them in one night uh, let me give you an example they range all the way from polygamy to the fact that the man has to be to be celibate right all the way to the fact that he's actually married, but he's married to the church, and the church is his wife. I don't have to tell you where that comes from, right? But this passage, <clears throat> uh, we come away with interpretation and, and rightly look at it. First, let me tell you that it doesn't have anything directly to do with divorce. Okay? And why do I tell you about that? Because the translation is a one-woman Man, that is the literal Greek rendering, where it says here, be the husband of one wife, the literal rendering is, be a one-woman man, okay? So, it's referring to a man's character most directly in the marriage. It is literally translated a one-woman man. So, is he a one-woman man? That's the question we have to ask about an elder. Is he faithful to his wife and is he faithful to his vows? Divorce does not automatically, in my opinion, disqualify a man from, from eldership. However, a divorce may raise red flags that need to be considered during a man's qualification for eldership. In other words, what was the basis for the divorce? Was it a divorce of convenience? What, what was the basis of a divorce that took place? When you're asking qualifying questions to an elder... 
And if you take it to mean divorce, or a remarried man even, if you say husband of one wife, then a man, a widowed man who is remarried, would be disqualified. Right? So you have to make sure you stick to context and what it actually says. So the qualification is a one-woman man. Here's a better question. How did he treat his wife? Is he a faithful man? Is he sexually pure? Now again, that raises all kinds of questions in church life because uh, you traditionally have in SBC life uh, a lot of division on what that, particularly, what that particular statement means. You have churches that have never ordained a divorced man as a deacon or an elder. However, I think you have to ask straightforward questions like, was the deacon divorce B.C.? Was it before Christ? Right? There's a lot of questions that are brought to the table. But what I'm telling you here is that it doesn't directly address divorce. It is one woman man. Okay? The next one is he must be temperate. He needs to be self-controlled. needs to have good judgment. Needs to be, here's a good translation, level-headed. So when you see the word temperate, one of the first things that comes to mind would be alcohol, right? And you would be right to think about that because another term used is sobriety. And that is, in fact, an issue to do with a sound mind. It is to be level-headed. It is to be self-controlled. He must be temperate. Let's move fast. He needs to be prudent. Now, there's, again, overlapping meanings with temperate. But it means good judgment. It has to be sensible. When you consider what an elder is called to do, you, he must be someone who is temperate and prudent. Good judgment. Sensible. All right? He must be well-ordered. The ESV says, uh, self-controlled, respectable. The actual word is cosmios. What do you get from that? Cosmos, you get order right so it means well ordered it also has another idea of honorable then the text says he must be hospitable <sighs> I have a hard time with uh, people who say that they are elders but they don't love people and let's be honest if you never come in con if, if you're more like a flyover ranger or rancher that just herds people together, and it's like, you know, there's thousands of people, you're just flying over them as a rancher, just herding them where they need to be. I don't think the Bible expresses pastoral leadership and care as a rancher, right? You're supposed to be in and among your people, and being hospitable is one of those. He does this sacrificially, and he does it without complaint. This qualification has a direct bearing on the wife of the elder. Right? Think about this. She's going to be okay with the fact that you invite six people over, but you only have five meatballs to feed them with. Right? I mean, let's think about it. That's what it means with, with being hospitable in the fact that you love people and you open up your heart and you open up your home. He must be able to teach. Uh, let me show you where this one works in concert. The Bible says he is to be apt to teach. In, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 2, at the conclusion. Now listen to what Titus says. Titus 1, 5 through 9. 
The Bible says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put in order what remained and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and has his children, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, aren't you thankful for other scriptures that kind of give us understanding of how to cipher through something like apt to teach? And then we read what Titus would say. So, most scholars believe that there are three elements that would flesh out what it means to be apt to teach. If we take together apt to teach and First uh, Titus 1.9, here's what we would say. Number one... There needs to be a good working knowledge of the Bible. Does that sound like one of those duh things, right? But let's be honest. There has to be a good working knowledge of the Bible. What are we responsible to teach? Say it. The Word of God, as Titus would remind us, that which has been delivered to us, that which we hold, it is the Word, it is the truth, it is Scripture's, We're responsible for teaching the Bible. It's not how to invest your money. That's not what we're teaching. It's not legal proceedings on how to or how to bake a cake. We have to be apt to teach the Word of God. So the prerequisite for teaching the Word is to have a fundamental working knowledge of what the Word of God says. Amen? Second, there needs to be readiness to teach, a readiness to exhort, refute. From the scriptures, apt to teach certainly has with it public teaching. But we should also have a willingness. We should also have a readiness to take the word of God, to encourage, exhort, rebuke, and refute in one-on-one kinds of situations as well. Okay? The third element is the ability to communicate. To teach, you have to have the ability to communicate. I think this is true one-on-one. This is also true if you're preaching to 30 or if you're preaching to 500. You have to have the ability to communicate. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a classroom and tried to learn the lesson, but the professor did not communicate well. Either it was he intentionally didn't want to communicate it well, or that's frustrating, isn't it? You, You know how that is. That's what some of you say in school now when you make a bad grade. I just didn't understand the teacher. And sometimes that's true, okay? So there is an ability to express truth, explain truth, and get the point across in an understandable way, okay? Not every elder teaches all the time, okay? There is a distinction. Chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There is a distinction made in that verse between those who labor extensively in the Word, maybe like I am as your pastor that preaches 95% of the time. I get that. 
That doesn't mean that when you have other elders, you should not give them the same respect and dignity that you would give your pastor. Uh, so uh, I bring that out to let you know that not every elder teaches all, teaches all the time. So this, I think, falsely has led to the belief of ruling elders and teaching elders. In other words, somebody looks at that verse and they say, Wow, if some are worthy of double honor because they labor in preaching and teaching, then the rest of the elders must be the ones who rule over the church. No, I'm telling you that that's too, too far of a distinction. I don't believe in ruling elders. I believe in all elders who are apt to teach. It's just that not all of them teach the same amount of time. Okay? Uh, I don't see a distinction there. But what you do have is some who teach more regularly, but all should be apt to teach, able to teach, willing to exhort, willing to refute. Any questions so far? No questions? Everybody good so far? All right, listen to the next one. Not a drunkard. How do we phrase that? He is not addicted to wine. Now, what is forbidden in this qualification? It is for him to be above reproach. Remember the umbrella? Above reproach in his use of alcohol. In other words, he cannot be known as a person who really likes his beer or his drink. The qualification is not that he abstains. Okay? I believe that is a matter of Christian liberty and conscience. Now, I may be the most fundamental of all of our elders that are presently in this church. I don't know about that. We really haven't talked about it. But, you know, you know my stance. I'm a teetotaler for many reasons. Okay? If nothing else, it's a stance against what causes so many problems in this world. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, we never should elect an elder that is, it is said of him that he really loves his alcohol. That would be a bad decision. Okay? Is that clear? In the Greek, it really has more vividness to it. He is not one who lingers over wine. That brings about that strong understanding of those who linger over it. All right? N uh, next, he is not violent. Doesn't have a short fuse. Doesn't have a bad temper. He's not the kind of person that when you get in his face, the first thing he's thinking about is should I get in with a left jab or a right hook, right? Uh, one of the translations actually says he is not pugnacious. How do y'all like that word, right? In other words, he's not looking for a fight as elders. I tell you, there are some high-tension situations. I've been in them, okay? And do you get passionate? Do you get, you know, you're standing on the truth of the word of God and, and people, well, if it's that kind of argument, that's, that's usually a better thing, okay? Because I've been told other things that had nothing to do with the Scripture. And those are kind of hard, too, right? I've had fingers put in my face uh, through the years on, on various things that had nothing to do with the Scripture. And what does God call us to be as His people? Not violent. Now, I can't totally say I haven't thought about I would like for you to put on a set of boxing gloves and me. And you could even wear one of those helmet things. And let, let me just get some of this out on your noggin. All right? I can't say I've never thought that before. I've just never been a striker. That's what the word is. Don't be a striker. And I have not, not a James striker. 
Owen, Owen, listen, Owen, it is not spelled like your last name, okay? S-T-R-I-K-E-R, don't be a striker, okay? We cannot settle matters by seeing who can throw the best punch. That's not how it's settled, all right? He's to be gentle or considerate or forbearing. Uh, this word is actually used in Philippians 4 or 5. It doesn't mean that an elder is a pushover. It doesn't mean that he's a pansy. It means that it, he is considerate and patient and seeks to manifest the character of Christ. He is uncontentious. The NAS says he is peaceable. He is not quarrelsome. He doesn't insist on having his own way. He is not always looking for a bone to pick with somebody. He's a peacemaker, not a fighter. Next, he is free from the love of money. Is this not one particular thing as we consider false teachers that we, cannot, we, that we can always point a finger at? Right? Just think about our world and the health and wealth that we live in. When it comes to that, false teachers almost always love the money. Yet in the text, we have warnings about this. 1 Timothy 6.5, Titus 1.11, and then what the scripture says here. So for an elder, there's godly contentment with what he has. And he models Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let me read that one to you. The Bible says, keep your life, imperative command, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he is free from the love of money. Next, he manages his own household well. You see it in the text. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of of Christ or God's church? He fleshes this out. He must not, oh, excuse me. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, How will he care for God's church? Now, what is this qualification predicated upon? That the church is not a business. The church is a family. Have you ever thought about that? Why does he use household? Well, because that's one of the metaphors for a family. And that's what the church is. So get get it in your mind up front that this qualification is predicated upon the fact that the church is a family not a business. So, that particular qualification looks at an elder and says, there is an appropriate analogy between home and church. How the man is at home is going to be some reflection on how that man actually governs the church of Christ. In other words, is he a good leader at home? The children, are they disciplined? Are they well behaved? There is a sense which children are always children. Have y'all figured that out? This is true whether they are PKs. You know what that stands for? Preacher's kids or deacons' kids, children, or even businessmen's children in the church. The fact of the matter is, there's a sense where all children are children. You know, the old joke used to be, what's wrong with the preacher's kids? Well, they all play with the deacon's kids, right? That's what's wrong with them. We've heard those jokes before. But there's another sense in the church where there has been an unfair fishbowl mentality that pastors' children feel, or a a child of a pastor feels. And my kids, you felt that, haven't you? Let's be honest. You know, Merritt, Timothy, uh, my daughter Elena, and Nathan, 
you, you feel that fishbowl effect. And there can be certain levels of expectation that are certainly unrealistic. Why? Because children are children. The issue here is what kind of father is he? That's the issue. What kind of father is the elder? If you have three children, I've got news for you. One out of three is going to be as wild as a March hare. So if you've had five children, whoa, two out of five. And let me just give you some advice. If you when you have your children, make sure you have the girl first. And my daughter would say amen to that, right? Even though she was born second. No, I'm just kidding, really, right? Does the father, does the elder have control of his children? Not are they perfect. Does he discipline them when they do wrong, right? Uh, the question is not if the children are perfectly behaved in church, but does dad take care of business? Paul uses a strong analogy. He addresses the man that can't control his own children. How can he lead the household of God? This qualification brings up some naughty issues, doesn't it? What about adult children that become rebellious? Did y'all know that all this came out of that one verse or that one statement? Many churches wrestle with this particular issue. What do you do when that child is late in adolescence or early in adulthood and rebels? For some churches, if the child rebels, the man is out. Did y'all know that? The elder is gone. Others have taken a more cautious approach saying, let's step back and see... Who this past, how this pastor has actually dealt with this particular situation. Has he dealt with the situation in the best way possible? Has he dealt with the situation that in a manner that is above reproach? So if he is not disqualified, uh, in that case, I don't think if he has dealt with it above in being above reproach, he is disqualified. My opinion is that it must be taken on a case-by-case situation, right? In the context, here it is, of a plurality of elders with men who love each other and desire to keep each other accountable, and that they are the ones who should weigh the issue, examine the situation, and come up with the decision and inform the church when the time is necessary. I think that's the way that it should be handled. All right? He must not be a new convert. What does eldership require? Spiritual maturity. Which, although there are ones who grow faster than others in the faith, right? A babe in Christ should never serve as an elder in the church of Christ. It's common sense. The individual doesn't know the scriptures well enough, especially in light of Christian experience. Okay, a new convert. So the position and the honor and the dignity, you know what can happen? Straight to the old head, this can make him conceited. It can make him proud. I think this position, however, has a broader application for us, doesn't it? Think about the church. Somebody with popularity gets converted. And we catapult that person into a position of being a spokesman for Christian faith. And the dude doesn't know diddly. Y'all do know that's happened. And it's happened a lot. The same temptation comes upon him as does a new convert when he's put forward in a position of eldership. Finally, he must have a good testimony with those on the outside. What does it mean? He needs to have a good reputation. Is he honest in his business dealings? Is he fair? What kind of language does he use? These are things we should think about. 
He concludes with one of those particular sins that can bring you under the snare of the enemy and that being one of them. Okay? Now, think about this for a moment. I know we went through it quickly, but except for being apt to teach, are these not all character issues that ought to be present in every believer's life? Right? They should be. The qualifications come down to a matter of character. For the eldership, there's a level of Christian maturity, a level of personal holiness that is required. Yet all of these, in some degree or another, except for apt to teach, should be exemplified in all Christians' lives. Okay, let me give you a summary. Number one, elders lead under the authority of Christ. I'm bringing you back full circle. We've been entrusted by Christ with the responsibility of overall leadership in the church. But hear me clearly, elders belong to the church. So elders do not have final authority over the church. The church does. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. The authority of Christ is ultimately invested in the gathered body of the church. We are servants of the church. And that's why it is elder-led congregationalism. Okay? Uh, I have, I don't know if Jeffrey ordered some books for me or not, but we're going to order about 75 books. And so take one per family right now, okay? But it, it really is a phenomenal little small book that's about yay thick. I think you can read it in a couple of days and lose your time. And it puts together better than any book I've seen other than the Bible, right? For you to understand uh, elder-led congregationalism, Okay. And when I get those books in, I'm pleased. I'm asking you to read it, okay? I think it will really help you understand what the biblical model is. So elders lead under the authority of Christ. Elders belong to the church, right? Okay, second, elders care for the body of Christ. Acts 20, 28. They protect, they nurture, they teach the word. What does that mean? You need to know the word of God extensively. In order for that to be true, you got to know the Word of God extensively. But you also have to know it, how to preach it effectively. Whether it's one-on-one, one-on-fifteen, one-on-thirty, or five-hundred here on a Sunday morning, it is to do so effectively. Elders lead under the authority of Christ. Elders care for the body of Christ. And elders model the character of Christ. And that's what we just learned out of 1 Timothy. That's what's in Titus 1 5 through 9. That's what's found in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Character qualifications, right? The church imitates its leaders. How? Think about that job description again in his personal life. Is he self-controlled? Is he wise? Is he peaceable? Is he gentle? Is he a sacrificial giver? God forbid that a, an elder lead people and is stingy and don't give. I mean, what kind of testimony is that? So, is he a sacrificial giver? Is he humble? Does he protect? Is he honest? Is he disciplined? So that's in his personal life. What about in his family life? Is he, is he the elder in his own home? Right? If he is single, is he self-controlled? If he's married, is he completely committed to his wife? If he has children, do they honor him? How about in his social business life? Is he kind? Is he hospitable? 
Is he a friend to strangers? Does he show favoritism? Does he have a blameless reputation? Not saying he's perfect, but is he above reproach? And then in his spiritual life, is she, is he, sorry, is he making disciples of all nations? We haven't even hit on this one. But, but understand something, folks. Pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God has given you pastors to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Folks, do you realize how important that is? In other words, God has given you elders in the disciple-making process. Pastors, Ephesians 4.11, equip the saints. The pastor teachers equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what we're called to do. So, if you're an elder, then you ought to have the nations in your heart and mind. You ought to think about the community that needs to come to Christ. We ought to be thinking about Guatemala, thinking about Vietnam, thinking about these places around the world as an elder, right? We, we need to think about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Is he a disciple maker? Does he love the word of God? It's a good question, isn't it? Is he a man of prayer? Is he holy? And is he gracious? Again, we could preach much, much more on elders but that's just two to, to help you understand uh, why we believe it is biblical and necessary to have a plurality of elders and what are the qualifications of it. Okay? Uh, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's okay. But if you have a question that's stuck in your crawl, right, ask that question. Yes, ma'am.